This um, this topic is a really complex and challenging and difficult issue. It's not just um, difficult from an ethical and a, and a moral place, but it's also difficult from a personal point of view because thinking about death and dying uh, is not an easy thing. And uh, as Stephen said, I'm sure that all of us have been touched by death and dying in some way. Uh, many of us through this COVID pandemic, and I too have have lost people and friends who were were close to me. And um, I think all of us have been confronted with the um, the issue about death and dying. We've seen those horrific images, haven't we, of mass graves and of uh, people with covered in PPE and and uh, and many, many people, many Christian people have died uh, during this pandemic and many of them in, in, in tragic circumstances. So the question of what it means to die well is something that affects all of us. And, and, and that's the question which I think is going to, which lies behind some of the issues we're going to be talking about. So I'm, I'm going to, it's a huge topic and I can't do justice to it in the time we've got. I'm going to speak just for about 20 minutes and um, just give a sort of summary of some of the most important points. But then I'm very keen to try and engage with particular questions or issues that you'd like to discuss. So please, as we go along, feel free to make a note and uh, we'll have plenty of time to uh, interact and discuss afterwards. So I've got basically four points I want to make. And um, the first point is about language. So it's a fascinating to me that as you go back into the history of ethics, you find that so often people have tried to find nice sounding euphemistic phrases to describe what is actually something that's quite wrong and immoral. And, and you could trace this back for hundreds of years. And the very first description of mercy killing, um, which comes in the 19th century when it was being first being proposed as a solution to what to do with so many people's who, with, uh, people with mental disabilities and handicap and other people whose lives were thought not to be living, worth living. And what was proposed was to have a lethal chamber would you believe, in which people could be placed so that they could be mercifully killed. And it was decided to describe this not as killing, but as euthanatos, good death. So euthanasia literally means a good death. And right from the beginning, therefore, there's been this manipulation of language. And, and people have, over the years have used many different phrases like easing the passing, uh, medical aid in dying um, and uh, choice and control at the end of life. And in it's different phrases are used in different countries. But in this, in the UK, a, a bunch of very clever lawyers who use language in a very precise way have decided that this phrase, assisted dying, should be used to describe what is actually a kind of medical killing. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it, why they've chosen that phrase. Assisted dying sounds so 
nice and friendly and, and why should you possibly be opposed to a law on assisted dying and of course if you go out into the public and you have a, a questionnaire and you stop people in the street and you say do you think there should be a law, a law to assist people so they can die peacefully and without pain you wouldn't be surprised when more than 80 percent of the public say yes of course there should be a law that can, so people can be assisted and die without pain but that language is deliberately manipulative and conceals the truth. The truth is what is being proposed is something which is completely different from normal medical practice. It is to give people a massive overdose of a lethal drug with the intention to kill immediately, rapidly, cleanly. And um, the, the the, ch the choice of drugs which has been used by the people who are proposing medical killing are completely different from the drugs that palliative care doctors use. That's a very important point that when palliative care doctors are looking after people, they they're not intending to kill. They're actually trying to help people to die naturally and just to control the symptoms. And so they choose drugs that are very safe that are not designed to kill. Uh, but the euthanasia doctors, the doctors who are proposing assisted dying, choose completely different drugs, drugs which are known to be lethal. And they, they use somewhere between 50 and 100 times the normal therapeutic dose, a massive overdose of, of a lethal drugs called barbiturates uh, designed to kill rapidly and cleanly. So the intention is to kill and uh, but they call this assisted dying what is actually involved is is, is taking a is is a patient taking this um lethal combination of drugs usually by mouth but in some cases where they're not able to take it by mouth then what's being proposed is that a intravenous line would be put into someone's arm or, and they would be connected up to a syringe driver and they themselves would be able to press a button, which then put a lethal injection uh, into, the, into the vein so that they would die immediately. So this, at the moment, it, it, this is basically a form of suicide. And the best, most accurate description is to call this medically assisted suicide or physician assisted suicide. But if you look at the people who are proposing this, they never use that word. They never use suicide. They never use um, killing or lethal drugs or anything like that. They use these soft phrases, assisting the dying, helping people pass peacefully, choice and control. And it's interesting to ask, why is it that language is so important? So often it seems, when you look at the history of medical ethics, that the manipulation of language precedes the change in action, the change in behaviour. So why is it that language is so important? Well, I think it tells us something very significant, that the words we use to describe our actions are very, very important. And I love, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper name. The beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper name. And so in this debate, don't be surprised when people like me and others who are trying to resist the legalization of assisted dying, 
we deliberately avoid talking about assisted dying and instead we use language which is more accurate which is forms of medical killing or assisting suicide and there's a spiritual dimension to this of course isn't there because if you think about the way the bible talks about the evil one what's the very first words of the evil one in scripture and if you know your bibles you'll know it's in genesis chapter 3 and the evil one says did god really say in other words it's an attack on language and and jesus described And, and to argue that the law should be changed. And uh, I'm going to look at those arguments in turn. The first argument is the argument based on suffering. People are suffering terribly and we should have compassion on them. You know, and you will have heard this kind of arguments. You know, we wouldn't allow a dog to suffer. We would put them out of their misery. Why on earth should we allow human beings to suffer? surely the compassionate thing to do is to kill them to put them out of there to stop the pain or to allow them to kill themselves for the doctor to help them to kill themselves this is surely the only compassionate thing uh, to be done and sadly as far as i'm concerned a number of prominent christians particularly um the lord um oh, i've just lost his name the previous archbishop um has come out in favor of uh, assisted suicide uh, and, and uses the argument from compassion lord carey that's his name and he has argued in favor of uh, assisted dying quotes because he says that's what jesus says we should be compassionate and that's what compassion tells us to do that we should put people out of their misery it's interesting, you know, that there he is as an archbishop, as a previous archbishop, supporting assisted dying, when for 2,000 years Christians have opposed medical killing, all forms of killing, and opposed suicide. So the implication seems to be that for 2,000 years Christians haven't been compassionate. But along comes Lord Carey, and he's, for the first time, he recognises that Christians are called to be compassionate, and that means we need to kill people. And I think, obviously, that should give us pause as we should recognize well of course christians have always wanted to be compassionate christians have always acted out of compassion why is it therefore why have christians always opposed killing even though they've been committed to compassion and of course as christians we are we are committed to be compassionate towards those in terrible pain and it is true that some people towards the end of life can suffer very severely but here we should give thanks for one of the most remarkable people in this whole field which was a christian lady called cicely saunders who in the 1950s and 60s invented a whole new way of caring for dying people um, which became known as palliative care and she, and she was motivated by her christian faith and, and she developed a new way of caring for people. 
which was designed to prevent intractable suffering at the end of life. But it was more than about preventing suffering. What she said is not only will we help you to die peacefully, but we will help you to live before you die. And that slogan, to live before you die, became one of the slogans of the palliative care movement that she started because she recognized that those last few days and weeks of life could be something very precious, could be very significant. That's the thing I'm going to come back to. But in essence, the, one of her other great slogans were, you don't have to kill the patient in order to kill the pain. I wish that Lord Carey understood that. You don't have to kill the patient in order to kill the pain. And one of her great insights was that pain at the end of the life is much more than physical pain. Yes, there sometimes is physical pain. You know, someone might be having advanced cancer and it might be pressing on nerves and bones and, and causing pain. And if there is physical pain, then of course it should be treated with powerful painkillers. But we should thank God that, that God has given us the knowledge of how to treat physical pain. In fact, physical pain is the easy kind of pain. Physical pain, I speak as a doctor who's cared for many dying people, and I can say pretty confidently that physical pain can either be completely eradicated or very much reduced so that it's just reduced to the level of discomfort. The problem pain is not physical pain. The problem pain are the other kinds of pain. And what Cicely Saunders realized was that many people who are dying have psychological pain, anxiety or depression or feelings of, of, of meaninglessness and so on. Many people have relational pain because they may have broken relationships. And as they come to the end of life, it's those broken relationships which actually cause the deepest pain. And many people have spiritual pain. They may have feelings of guilt about past uh, behavior. They may have feelings about the meaninglessness of their life. They may have worries about what's going to happen after I die. Will I meet my maker? So it's these kinds of pain spiritual pain, relational pain, psychological pain, these are very important sources of pain, but surprise, surprise, they don't respond to physical treatments. And what Cicely Saunders and others realize is that you had to treat them specifically. So with psychological pain, it may involve things like companionship, friendship, sometimes talking therapies from a therapist or a counselor, often just friendship and companionship. With the relational pain, it's trying to work out where the broken relationships are and seeing, can we help to, to find reconciliation? So sometimes when someone is dying, there's an opportunity for relationships that have been broken. Sometimes for decades, those relationships can be healed. One of the interesting things is that a dying person has a kind of relational authority. A dying person can say, I really want to speak my, to my son, even though we haven't, I really think that I ought to, will my, or to my brother or to my estranged wife or to somebody else because I'm dying and I need to see them before I die. And they have a kind of relational authority to have, to, that, that relationships can be healed. So there's 
relational pain, there's spiritual pain. And for, of course, for spiritual pain, what is often needed is really sensitive pastoral care, prayer, and sometimes participating in, in the basic uh, cycle of worship. When Cicely Saunders was building a custom-built hospice in, in the south of London, um, she designed it so that the chapel should be in the centre of the building and so designed so that wherever everybody, all the patients, the inpatients, however sick they were, they could be wheeled in their beds into the chapel. And in the chapel, there was a daily cycle of, of worship and of the, the Eucharist, the breaking of bread. And um, because this was a way of, of, of putting spiritual care right at the heart of St. Christopher's Hospice, the specialist hospice that she built. So the, the answer to compassion, real compassion is not to kill somebody or to help them to kill themselves. Real compassion is to provide excellent care and to meet all their kinds of suffering, not just the physical suffering. So that's number two, the argument from compassion. Number three, is there's another primary argument that is being used in favour of assisted suicide. And that is the argument of for what ethicists call autonomy. Or to put it in simpler language, my choice, my life, my choice. Autonomy means literally autonomos, I make my own rules. And autonomy is the biggest idea in modern secular society. There are many medical ethicists that I work with in the secular medical world, and they say that the principle of autonomy is the principle in the whole of medical ethics. It's the, it's the most important overriding principle. Everybody has the right to make their own choices. Everybody has the right to live their own life. Now, again, as a Christian, we wouldn't say immediately, and that's quite wrong. Because actually God does give us a huge amount of freedom. He gives us a freedom to choose, to choose how to spend our lives, to choose how to spend our money, to choose what's most important in our lives. But we're accountable for the choices we make. But the Christian understanding of freedom is not the same as the secular understanding of autonomy, because autonomy says, I am God, I am the boss. I make choices, I lead my own life. But many, many people, particularly younger people in our society, are totally convinced that they have the right to lead their own lives and make their own choices. And to them, it seems utterly outrageous that even though I can choose where I live and I can choose how I spend my money and I can choose how I work and I can choose everything about my life. The one thing I can't choose is how and when I die. And many people say that's outrageous. This is the 21st century. Of course, I should be able to choose when I die and how I die. It's ridiculous that the law stops me from choosing. So what's the answer to the argument about autonomy? Well, the answer is this. It, we live, because we live in a civilization where we care for one another, 
my personal choices have to be constantly limited because of the needs of other people. So I'm told I have to drive on the left side of the road. I think that's outrageous. I'm a free person. I should be able to drive wherever I like. And yet I'm told I have to drive on the left-hand side of the road and I'm told that when the traffic light is red, I have to stop. I have no autonomy to drive through a red traffic light. In other words, we all understand why that is the case. People's individual choices have to be limited in order to protect other people. And it's just the same in when it comes to choosing when to die. My choice, if I had the choice, if we change the law so everybody could choose when they would die, then the question is, what is the impact on the rest of society? We hear a lot and we're going to hear more about a small selection of tragic cases of people who have to go to the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland to kill themselves because they're not allowed to kill themselves in, in the UK. And we're going to hear lots of stories about how outrageous that is and why on earth can't the law be changed. But do you know how many people there are every year who go from the UK to the Dignitas Clinic? It's somewhere about 50. 30 to 50 people a year. It actually went down during the pandemic, surprisingly enough. Now compare that with how many people die every year in the UK, and the answer is 500,000. So what is being proposed is that the law should be changed to meet the needs of 50 people who are desperate to kill themselves, even if that jeopardizes and puts at risk hundreds of thousands of vulnerable people who die every year. And so the argument for autonomy is that some people have to have their own wishes, their own autonomous choices limited in order to protect the vast majority. And then finally, I, uh, I've already mentioned about palliative care and its importance, but it's so important that whenever as Christians we say that something is wrong, that something is immoral, we must immediately say, and here is a better way. It's not good enough to say killing is wrong, suicide is wrong, it's wrong, it's bad, it's evil. We must immediately say, and here is a better way. And I can honestly say that palliative care is a better way, caring for dying people, meeting their needs. And that's because time and time again, I've seen that when people die well, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for spiritual growth. It's an opportunity for finding forgiveness. I've seen relationships which have been healed, sometimes just within the, literally the last days or weeks of life. I've seen where reconciliation between relationships that have been broken. I've seen people asking for forgiveness. I've seen people fulfilling dreams being able to do things that they didn't never believe they would be able to do. But once you know that you've only got a few weeks left to live, all of a sudden you have permission to fulfill your dreams. I've seen people learning to let go. And I've seen people um, preparing spiritually to meet their bridegroom, their father and their Lord.
And so, yes, dying well is not, I don't want to sanitize it. I don't want to pretend that it's all wonderful because sometimes it's painful, it's difficult, it's, it's frightening even. And yet, by God's grace, it can be the most wonderful preparation, a, most, a time of growth, of healing, of forgiveness and reconciliation. And the trouble with euthanasia, mercy killing, or with assisted suicide is it sort of short circuits all that. I just say, I don't want any of that. I don't want to experience anything unpleasant. I don't want to experience dependence. I just want to say, good night, I'm going. But by God's grace, although dying death is still an enemy and the process of dying is 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 not easy and can be difficult and challenging and painful yet by god's grace it can be redeemed something positive can come out of the evil and you know that is a uniquely christian understanding no other philosophy no other religion really understands redemption but it's right at the heart of Christianity, isn't it? That Jesus went through the agony of death, but out of that agony came something wonderful, something profound, something transformative. And in a small way, our dying can also, of course, the way our dying is not in any way like the dying of the Lord Jesus, but in the same way, it can also be redemptive. And our little experiences can be like a cameo, a picture of the big story of Jesus dying on the cross. So it, it's never wasted. It's, it's something that instead can be redeemed. Okay, so I, I've come to the end. So those, those are the first points. First of all, we need to think about our language. Secondly, we need to look at the argument about compassion and say, what is the best way to treat people who are in pain at the end of life? We need to think about the argument of choice and autonomy. And then we need to see that dying well is an opportunity. It's not just something evil, something to be avoided. Thanks very much.